you know parties, it's a real simple recipe, right? Everybody loves them. Family, friends, food, and fun. If you have those four things, you've got a party. And everyone was supposed to come to this party. It was a traditional party, only in the sense that it happened every single year. It had become a part of the rhythm of life for the people of Israel. An annual party that they geared up for every single year, which in this case, gearing up meant that you packed all your junk that you were going to need for a whole week of partying. Listen, when it's a really big party here, it lasts into the next morning, right? And then we go, it's enough of that. But the Israeli people, these are party mongers, okay? They, they, They do this professionally and repeatedly. And in this case, the party was going to last an entire week. And it was the entire nation partying together. The, the law said that every single able-bodied person was supposed to leave wherever they lived, out on a farm, in some village, some big city, and make this pilgrimage all the way into Jerusalem, and there for an entire week, food, fun, friends, family, and, you know, worship services and those things as well. Yeah, yeah, and somebody just went, that's no party. Hmm. Well, when you party like they did, you'd have seen. That's where the, the text that Bill read to us earlier today took us. It took us to the countdown to this yearly party that was truly beyond anything that our American culture can really imagine. If, if, if we could come close, it would be something like 4th of July plus Christmas plus New Year's Eve all rolled into one and lasting for an entire week. And that is where Jesus and his disciples found themselves, his disciples in particular, as they obeyed his command, went back into Jerusalem to wait for the Holy Spirit. And let's just say that when they got there, it seemed like party as usual. But when the Holy Spirit got there, well, he turned it into a whole new kind of party. The story, as we read it, tells us uh, a number of things. First of all, it tells us that it was the day of Pentecost. And and that means that it was this big required pilgrimage kind of party that I was talking about. But the party had a point. It was for them to remember that time way back in Israeli history when God had showed up on the scene in some unmistakable ways. The scripture says that the mountains smoked and that the sky turned dark and lightning and thunder and fire and all of these things. Back at at Mount Sinai. And when God showed up and the mountain smoked and did all of those things, the people of Israel came to understand that God was on the scene and that something spectacular was about to happen. And in this case, it meant that God was going to show up and give the law, the Ten Commandments and the National Charter to the people of Israel. And this became the defining element in Israel's identity. From that point on, they always thought of themselves as the people of the the law or the covenant. And so this festival of Pentecost in reenacting and remembering that each year was a way that Israel rhythmically, systematically reminded themselves exactly who they were intended to be. There's a problem with that. See, when you're the people of the law, something's going to become really apparent to you in short order. And it's this, that the people of the law are broken and enslaved lawbreakers. 
As soon as you see the law for what it is, you kind of see yourself for who you are. And like the people of Israel, you'll understand that uh, I'm not exactly getting this thing right. And so Pentecost was this kind of loved but hated festival in the life of the people of Israel each year. Yay, we get to go be with friends and family and the food is awesome. But then there's the church services where they keep pointing out all the wrong things that I do. Yeah, so a little bit of a love-hate relationship with Pentecost for the people of Israel. They'd go and really throw themselves into the party part of it and then, you know, do their religious duty, but kind of shy away from engaging with the spiritual meaning because the law condemned them in their hearts. The text also tells us that the first Christ followers were all together during this party. Why? It was because they had made up their minds. They were going to obey Jesus' command. Remember the command from last week? He said, hey, back into Jerusalem. Hang out there until you receive this gift that my father is going to give you. But because the gift that... The Holy, that the Father was going to give them was the Holy Spirit, you may remember, that people were a little bit leery. Because who wants the Holy Spirit if He makes you act like all those weird prophets that we talked about? Who wants the Holy Spirit if it turns you into something of a national basket case like Samson? But all the same, they were there, they were together, they were obediently waiting for this gift that Jesus had promised to them. The text also says that while they were there, there's party as usual going on around them, the sound of music and the sound of animals and the sound of people who'd been partying a little bit too hard for too many days, all of those things. Then all of a sudden, their physical environment began to change around them. The text says that those first Christ followers were in this upper room in this nondescript house in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, something that sounded like this big wind filled the house. Now, listen, I come from big wind country, not like um, Wyoming, where the wind just blows in a straight line. I come from tornado country because we grew up back in Missouri. And in Missouri, the wind always blows in very tight circles. And, uh, you know, it's a large vacuum cleaner that sucks things up off the off the ground. And that's the end of that. If you grow up in Missouri, like Laura and I did, you are either a person who has lost a house or, you know, a person who's lost a house. Right. As the old joke goes, you know, the joke. What what do a uh, Missouri tornado and a redneck divorce have in common? Somebody's going to lose a trailer. Okay. <laughs> um, It's kind of the way that we grew up. (laughs) I mean, I knew this guy named Fred. I don't remember what Fred's last name was. Mom, he played in Lloyd Prince's band, but his name was Fred. And Fred had this blue house. And as we went to this town called Jericho Springs, Fred's house would be on the left. But there was a tornado one day. And the next day, Dad and I were driving over to Jericho Springs. (laughs) Away we go. And... Fred's blue house was on the right side of the road. I mean, just like somebody just picked it up and did this with it, and it faced us. Why? Because big wind. We grew up in big wind country. We read the book of Acts, and Acts chapter 2, where we are today, it doesn't say that this big wind blew. It says that there was a sound sort of like this really big wind blowing. So picture it. You hear the, but nothing's moving. You hear the, But it's still outside. Here's an interesting idea. Um, 
the Greek and Hebrew words, two different languages, but New Testament written in Greek. In both languages, the word for wind is the exact same word for breath and for spirit. One word, it means either wind or breath or spirit, and the context will help you understand which of those was the case. I think the uh, translation committee, for the most part, gets these things right, and today I think they did too. The uh, text says that something that sounded like a mighty rushing wind filled the house. But I want to uh, say that there should probably be a footnote there because I think it is possible that what it sounded like was some heavy breathing. We'll come back to it in just a little bit. But the text tells us that their physical environment began to change. Something that sounded like this great big wind blew and it came inside the house. So now the the sound is coming from inside here and the place is starting to shake from the sound of it and everybody's starting to clue in. Maybe something's about to happen. Yeah, something was about to happen. The house was going to catch on fire because now all of a sudden there's not just the sound of wind, but the fire coming in the windows. And here's a little rule. People should leave houses when they fill up with fire, right? You know the rule. They taught you when you were this big. When you went to school, they said, when the place is on fire, hit your knees and get out of, down the hall and out to the entrance and out of the place. It's nothing new. We've been teaching people that forever. This place, boom, fire comes into the room and people are sitting there going, maybe this is the Holy Spirit. Hmm, that's a rather interesting interpretation when your house catches on fire. But but you have to remember who these people were. They were people who'd been really indoctrinated in Old Testament kind of thinking because, well, they were Old Testament people. And for them... Fire meant something very different from us. See, because we're Americans and we like to own things. And whenever fire comes, we're worried about our stuff getting consumed. But fire had this very dominant meaning in their culture. And the dominant meaning was the sign of God's approval upon your sacrifice. You remember the story from the Old Testament? We've got Elijah, who's a prophet, and a little bit weird. And then we've got 400 priests and prophets of Baal. Also weird people. See, when we go to church, pastors, for the most part, you know, clean up a little bit, shave, and um, hopefully, uh, you know, comb hair if they have it and all of that. But they, they kind of put themselves together and then, present company excluded, act like dignified human beings, right? The preacher, prophets, priests of Baal, not so much. They went to church and would cut themselves and bleed all over the place. You remember the story? 400 prophets who started out like the worship team, singing beautiful songs and and praying eloquent prayers and trying to get their God to pay attention. But before long, that's not working, so they're poking holes in themselves, trying to get blood and sacrifice and some kind of attention. And here's one of the unfortunate facts of biblical history is that we have the dignified, holy man of God, Elijah, on the side, making fun of them as they worship, saying, maybe you should just turn it up a little bit. I hear your God's hard of hearing. And when that didn't work, he said, you know, maybe he's taking a nap because, you know, your God gets tired. And then not making this up, he said, maybe he's going to the bathroom and you just need to on the door a little bit and he'll uh, It's in the Bible. Read it. I promise it's there. That's the man of God taunting the other people. Okay. Hmm. They uh, quit. Finally, they get all worn out and bled out or something. And uh, at some point they just kind of sit down and figure, well, 
our God's not going to show up today. And what does Elijah do? Elijah says, tell you what, I've got this sacrifice over here. Why don't you drench it in water? And then I'll just pray. And he prays this short prayer. I mean, like 63 words or something. And the text says that fire fell out of heaven and it burned up the sacrifice and it burned up all of the water. They dug a trench around the thing to hold all the water. It burned up all the water. It burned up all the rocks that they built the altar out of. It was this very clear symbol that God had accepted that which his people were offering to him on that day. So on the day of Pentecost, when these Old Testament people are sitting in there, the sound of the wind, that's a little freaky. But when fire comes in the window, whatever else it is, if it doesn't melt you, then it's a clear sign that God has accepted your offering. They also thought of fire as this thing that that um, set things apart for God's use only. Uh, the, the word is sanctified. Now, they didn't use it the way Nazarenes do. They used it um, the biblical way, which means sanctified means set apart for God's use only. And so many times, this is kind of foreign to our thinking. Um, let's say that the people of Israel were at war and, you know, they won. And so now there were valuable things lying around. The soldiers would all pick them up and cart them off. And people have done this all throughout history. And the spoils of war belong to the victor. But in this case, in Israel's case, almost all of the time, they would bring the spoils back and then light them on fire. Burn them up. Why? Well, it was because they had this notion in their heads that this belongs to God. And so it can't be used for any other purpose, only for God's purposes. And there's one way and one way only that we can guarantee that nobody gets a hold of this precious item and uses it for some profane reason. So they would light it on fire and figure God can put the the ashes, the pieces back together and he can use it, but no human can. And so whenever fire came, there was this sign that, oh, God's accepting our sacrifice. But it, that was the, the action from God's side. But the action from our side was, let's give something to him that no human being can ever get a hold of again. This belongs to God and to him only. They, so when you read the Old Testament, depending on the translation that you read, when you, when you read something and it says, and it was given over to God, it means this, brush fire. They just lit it on fire and, and that was the end of that. So here we are, day of Pentecost, religious festival that the people kind of love and kind of hate, but more love than hate, so they went anyway. The first Christ followers, instead of hanging out with all of their families, and they were in one room, in one place, and they were waiting obediently for this gift that God had promised them. All of a sudden, the sound of a big wind, maybe breath, and... The house starts shaking and then fire comes in the windows and instead of it consuming everything, there's a theme in the scripture too, right? About fire that doesn't consume. It just makes it clear that God's on the scene. This fire then separates and begins to just like settle onto the heads of the people in the room like so many birds. And the text says that the people then were filled with the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus had promised. We have promise, go to Jerusalem. God's got a gift for you. It's the Holy Spirit. Don't worry. It's not the weird kind. And they go to Jerusalem and they wait. And what do you know? Strangely enough, God keeps his promises in fire, wind, all that. And then Holy Spirit comes. It's kind of an interesting thing. And most of the time when when pastors preach about this text, they'll say, and that was the first time that the Holy Spirit um, had come upon them. And it's not. I mean, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on that day was very definitely different than at any other point in history. But if you go back to John chapter 20, 
we read about the Holy Spirit coming upon the disciples. John chapter 20 is uh, a, a story that takes place after Jesus has been crucified and risen from the dead, but before he ascended into heaven. In that 40-day period we refer to as the post-resurrection days. And John chapter 20 tells us about the disciples. They're all in some place eating, and Jesus shows up. And instead of talking about the weather, instead of having a big lesson that day, he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And John says he then did something very strange. He went, breathed on them. That's now listen, the teens were just slightly creeped out. And I was like, what, eight feet, you say, in Jace, from me to you. But if I close her down to eight inches and start doing that, there's people... But remember the words, spirit, wind, breath, it's the same word. Jesus said, hey, receive the holy wind. Receive the breath of God. It'll really, truly make you alive. Then Jesus uh, left the room, apparently, and the disciples went, huh, I wonder what that was all about. So then sometime later, he says, well, uh, there's more of that, so go back to Jerusalem and wait. And that's what they ended up doing on this day. And it's why it makes me wonder if perhaps when they were in that house that day, what they heard was this big breath. Instead of this tornado, they heard the breath of God. (gasps) Giving them the breath of life. Kind of for the first time. All we know is that their lives were categorically different from that point forward. Before they had received the Holy Spirit, but... On this day, the day of Pentecost, it it, it seemed to come in a a different sized portion as indicated by the word filled. Luke said they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And however it was similar, it was also different from that post-resurrection appearance. It seems that on this day, Jesus was binding the people and the Holy Spirit together in some sort of like a spiritual weld that would permanently empower these people to be his witness. Now understand, you do understand that this experience, this story... um, still inspires debate to this day. The Charismatics and uh, Pentecostal people and we Wesleyans, we all talk freely about this experience of the coming of the Holy Spirit, whether you talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit or baptized with the Holy Spirit, lots of different words for more or less the same experience. We all talk freely about this, but the problem is that we all tend to focus our talk on the effects in the process. The Charismatics and Pentecostals focus on the signs and wonders that happen whenever God's Holy Spirit shows up. When God's Holy Spirit shows up, weird things happen. They did in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, people begin to act differently. Guess what? Happens today now too. When the Holy Spirit comes, when people really welcome Him and they wait and they are hungry for Him and they are open to Him, when He shows up, you act differently. Things happen that don't happen like when you're just hanging out watching football or water skiing or whatever you do. 
The charismatics, the, the Pentecostals, they focus on these, these occurrences, these signs and wonders. And we Wesleyan folks, we tend to focus on other things. We focus on the holy living and the morality that tends to result. I think it's okay to look at each of those, but I would, I would point you back to the scriptures this morning because in this passage, in Acts chapter 1 and 2, Jesus didn't talk about either of those things. He didn't associate either of those things with the coming of the Holy Spirit. He said when the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to come upon you for the purpose of becoming a believable sign of God's love to the world around you. You are going to become a witness. You know as well as I do how holy living empowers that, but that was not the focus. Witness was the focus. Jesus said... The Holy Spirit's power is given to you so that you are able to now go out and be a believable sign of his love to the world around you. Listen, if we really come to believe a handful of things, number one, that God is sending us out there as his witnesses. If we really come to believe that number two, he goes with us and has filled us and is living in us as we share the message of the story of Jesus and the Jesus life, things are going to change. If you really believe that he sends you, if you really believe you have the responsibility to go and you believe that you are not on your own in this, but that the Holy Spirit who makes weird wind noises and lights things on fire comes and lives inside of you as you go to fulfill the mission, you are going to think very differently about the mission and you'll probably expect it to work. You'll start thinking, maybe if God's on the scene, that guy who usually is a little resistant to God talk might soften up a little bit. Hey, I was a, a police chaplain for nine years. And uh, this buddy of mine who was a Christian um, introduced me to a new cop on the force. And so it worked, you know, about like most introductions do. You get to be Scott today, Dustin. And so, um, and it's Oliver, right? Come on up here. And um, come on, guys. Um, except you're not Dustin and Oliver. You are Scott and you are George. Okay? Actual names. Because I don't change the names to protect the guilty. All right. So this is my buddy, Scott, who greets me and introduces me to his friend, George. Hey, that's my buddy, George. Hey, George. Good to meet you. And this is where I become George and you become Cliff. So switch me spots here. So now greet me because I'm George and you're Cliff. Hey, um, I'm not religious. Um, I don't miss church and church doesn't miss me. So don't think you're going to convert me. That was the introduction. Okay, literally. Hi, George. And George gives me the lecture about don't be getting all gaudy on me because I won't have it. And for the next four hours, I didn't say a word because George just talked to me about God and faith and religion for four straight hours. I didn't even have to talk. Yeah. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, a hand for Scott and George, please. Yeah, thanks, guys. That... Here's the deal. I had been praying for this new cop on the force. I was looking for the opportunity to share the gospel with him. And I prayed as soon as I walked into the restaurant and I saw Scott and the new guy. Oh, come on, Lord. Would you give me an opportunity here? Me an opportunity? All I had to do was show up and the Holy Spirit gets George to talk about him. Listen, when you believe, when you take seriously the responsibility that God is sending us out there, that we don't have an option in this deal, that we are going to be as witnesses, but that when we go, we don't go with our little made-up speeches 
or with self-confidence we go with the idea that God the Holy Spirit has made a way. He's paved the road in front of us and He's been putting people and events into place in that dude's life. When I show up on the scene knowing that the Holy Spirit is in pocket, I start to believe, hey, maybe this is it. Maybe God's going to do it today. And you know what? He does. Again and again and again. If you take this Holy Spirit business seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus said that if, that if we go, He'll go with us, right? And He goes in the person of His Holy Spirit. Okay, here's where the story gets weird. Uh, and it's the part where all Nazarenes go, man, I wish they wouldn't have put this in the Bible. But here it is. Uh, when the Holy Spirit showed up, um, they began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit enabled them. And we go, great, let's move on to chapter 3. Okay, big uncomfortable sigh, people, get over it. Okay, it's in the Bible. Um, let's take a look at it. Um, you should note that you should not stop reading there. Um, just read all the way through the chapter and you will find out that this is not nearly as scary as people have told you that it is. Because on the day of Pentecost, when these people were speaking in other tongues, languages, as the Spirit enabled them, it was 15 identifiable languages. Go to your Bible and count them. It's in there in those next few verses. It says, they spoke Elamite. I mean, when's the last time you heard Elamite, Right. It's one of the languages. There were 15 languages there that were spoken. And um, that kind of just takes the, um, ooh, what's this about? And lets you know what it's about. You want to know what it's about? Plain and simply, it's about this. It's about people being able to understand the gospel. The whole language thing, it was just about the Christ followers be becoming able by the power of the Holy Spirit to talk about Jesus in ways that people can understand. Don't make it more complicated than it is. It isn't about secret languages. It's about unsecret languages. It's about the gospel no longer remaining a secret to the people of the earth. This was just the way that God said, look, people have got to get the Jesus message. And I have a bunch of dumb hillbillies here who can't barely speak their own language. So he gave them this miraculous ability to speak other languages so that people could get the Jesus message. That's Acts chapter 2. That's it. That's it. What was the point of the languages? To prove that they had received the Holy Spirit? Nope. Fire proved that. (laughs) Right? Everybody on fire. Luke's pointing out in this passage that these formerly stumbling, bumbling, frightened, fleeing disciples suddenly, suddenly were able to witness or tell of Jesus' love to the people around them. Amazing. He gave them the ability to speak the language of the people around them. Don't ever forget that. We're going to come back to it. Listen. You can expect the very same thing. When you invite the Holy Spirit to come and really kind of take over your life, um, He's going to do some very predictable things. He'll do some unpredictable ones too that will amaze you. But in this case, He's going to do this very predictable thing. He is going to empower you to speak the language of the people around you. In other words, He wants to enable you to speak about Him in ways that your friends and your family and your co-workers and your teammates 
and your classmates can understand. And he says, I promise I've got you covered on this one. I'm going to do it. Hmm. You ever worry about knowing what to say in the God moment, you know, where he opens the door? You worry about that? It's not a rhetorical question. I'm looking for answers. Shake your heads yes or no. Okay. You worry about this, do you? Worry about knowing what to say? Yeah, that's, that's par for the course. And I'm not about to, uh, to chastise you for it because, oh man, for most of my life, uh, well, a little, little better than half of my life, I lived in that fear and I hid in this little place uh, called seminary which, where I was preparing to be this guy who would just be reserved for the people of God. See, I just figured my role in the body of Christ, since I was chicken about talking about him to unbelievers, my role would be just to teach all the people who already love God all the rules about how to be good Christians. That is the dumbest philosophy of ministry on the planet. And that's why God chased me out of seminary and wouldn't let me have my little uh, plan in life. Uh, instead, something happened over the course of my last year there where he just introduced me to a bunch of people who didn't know Jesus and then made me fall in love with them where I couldn't stand the thought of them being separated from him forever. And now I'm the only guy on the scene. And so apparently one of us is going to have to talk to them about the Lord. And, and I said, pick me. I was worried, though, about, about knowing what to say. I didn't want to look like a fool. And I, I mean, I tried a couple of times under my own power, and I, I, that didn't go very well. I didn't... Yeah, there's this kid named Seth. Oh, man. And, and when I was in seminary, I took this class, because they forced me, called Evangelism in the Local Church. And there was this guy. He's awesome. His name's Dr. Charles Shaver. He asks that you call him Chick. I still haven't figured that out. But uh, Dr. Shaver um, taught this uh, evangelism course and and for a grade in a master's level class, you had to share the gospel with somebody and then write a paper about it. So I was volunteering as this youth pastor in this uh, church in Harrisonville, Missouri, and youth group was on Sunday night and the paper was due on Monday and I'd put this off as long as I could. And poor Seth. Poor Seth. Seth was the only kid that I knew for sure did not know the Lord. And he was a seventh grader and I figured I can handle most seventh graders. So Seth shows up for youth group, which meant, you know, food and games. And uh, that was what he showed up for. And I said, Seth, can I see you for a minute? At which point he assumes he's in trouble, right? So, yeah, okay. So we uh, walked over into the uh, sanctuary and um, I started trying to force the issue. I mean, God hadn't opened a door. I'd kicked one open. It was clearly not Seth's day. And uh, I tried to share the gospel with him. Man, I was like five minutes into this thing and I'm talking about Leviticus and butchering animals. And, and this poor little seventh grade boy who'd never been to church before is just looking at me like, they have places for you, buddy. <laughs> I went on and on and, and it was just getting worse. I mean, I was... I was horrified. And poor Seth is sitting there respectfully. And so finally, like Dr. Shaver taught me, I said, Seth, does that sound like something you'd be interested in? He said, nope. Can I go now? <laughs> I said, yes. And Seth got away. Seth's never going to go to heaven, and it's my fault. Uh, he'll, he's run off from the church, and somewhere he's telling people about those horrible, horrible people who talk about killing animals. 
Yeah. This is what happened when I did it under my own power. But listen, these days I don't worry about knowing what to say. And it's not because I went to seminary. It's because after those horrible attempts, I figured, look, either God's got to do something or I need to get out of this gig. So I decided I was going to keep my mouth shut until God opened a door that I couldn't deny was an open door. And all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. Doors after door after door opened around me. And here's what I found out. I found out that Jesus meant it when he was speaking to his disciples. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 19, he said, Do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Listen, he meant it. When I quit trying to force the issue, when I just said, I'll be a witness every time that you put a stand up in front of me, I'll climb up on it and I'll just say it if, if I can. All of a sudden, I didn't have to corner little seventh grade boys and wrestle them to the ground to hear the, to share the gospel. I just had coworkers who, who said, man, you're different. What's that about? Man, I saw you praying over your food at lunch. You actually think that works? Man, you've been married for three years and you act like you like it. What is up with that? And there came the opportunities. And about the time that I started to sweat, the Holy Spirit would go, easy, young'un, I got this. And I just knew what to say. And it became as simple as talking about the weather or the stinking Broncos. It was just... I'm telling you. He keeps His promises when it comes to this. That power of the Holy Spirit that shook the the house and made it look like it was on fire, yeah, it can handle one little tongue going like this. Okay, It, it It can wiggle waggle your tongue the right way so that the sounds come out, that people understand, and you can become a believable sign of God's love. We as a church have to determine that with the Holy Spirit's help, we will start speaking the language of the culture around us so that they can understand this Jesus life. I'm going to say that again. You might want to write it down because it's important. We as a church have to determine that with the Spirit's help, we will start speaking the language of the culture around us so that they can understand the Jesus life. If you think that's anywhere close to right, say amen. Yeah, we need to. See, the pre-Christian world... It doesn't use the same vocabulary that the traditional church has. And for years, the church has tried to do Pentecost in reverse. We've been speaking our language and expecting the unbelieving world to pay attention and study and learn it so that they can then understand the Jesus story and the Jesus life. And they're just not gonna. So we've got to learn to speak their language. And with the Spirit's help, we can do that, can't we? Yeah, we can. The question is, are you willing? The question isn't, are you able? Because the Holy Spirit's going to make you able. The question is, are we willing? Listen, if we decide to become Jesus' witnesses and we seek the Holy Spirit's power, it is going to make us very uncomfortable because the Holy Spirit does not do comfort. I mean, He does comfort to people who are mourning, okay? But... He doesn't do comfort to people who make comfort their God. There's this um, 
elderly African-American preacher named Ken Hutcherson. He's the guy I'll credit because he's the first person I heard say it. He said, you know what my job is as pastor? To comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Okay? I think Ken Hutcherson was baptized with the Holy Spirit because uh, the Holy Spirit really, 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 really doesn't care if you're uncomfortable. He just doesn't. He just figures, uncomfortable, wow, they might grow. (laughs) Turn it up a notch. It's going to be uncomfortable if we agree that we need to, as a church, begin pursuing this business of learning to speak the language of the unbelieving around us. It will make us uncomfortable, but I'll guarantee you this. It will also be exciting because when we start purposing to seek the Holy Spirit and his power for being witnesses in this culture, people are going to be saved from hell in the next life and hellish lives that they're making for themselves in the here and now. And that's just good business. That is just the best thing in the world. You'll quit arguing about dumb stuff. You will quit um, elevating tradition to the place that it holds sway over everything else. When you see your neighbors and friends, your grandkids coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ because we have pursued the Holy Spirit and His power for becoming believable witnesses, you'll trade everything you got for a chance to see the people that you know and love come to be people who are connected with God. I'm telling you, it's better than your favorite music. I'm telling you, it's better than your pew that you've sat in for a hundred years. It's better than the thing you donated money to build or that has your family's name on it. The business of seeing people come to know the Lord Jesus, safe from hell in the future and hellish lives here and now. It's the best thing on earth. The planet. On that day of Pentecost, uh, these people blew out into the streets and they were talking, sharing the Jesus life, the Jesus story in languages that everybody could understand. And the people out there who were um, listening began to notice a few hints of the supernatural. Um, it's kind of an interesting thing. Christians are usually fully aware when the Holy Spirit shows up and begins to do his deal. And the, the pre-Christian people are just kind of sort of noticing some things a little bit different. And that's the way it was on that day, right? The Christian people upstairs in the room said, wow, sounds like the roof's going to get peeled off of this dump. Hey, what do you know? The house is on fire. Now my hair is. They're noticing, Holy Spirit coming. I'm speaking other languages. And the... They were fully tuned in to what was happening. Here's what was happening in the street. Here's the word on the street. It says that they were bewildered. (laughs) They were confused. That's pretty normal among pre-Christian people when the Holy Spirit shows up. First Corinthians, it's uh, chapter 2, verse 14, says, The man without the Spirit cannot accept the things that come from the Spirit of God and their foolishness to Him. And He cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So all the people in that upper room who are filled with the Holy Spirit started seeing the, the response of the people in the crowd. They went, that looks about right. They're standing around being confused, going, I don't get it, I don't get it. But that's kind of a negative term, bewildered. The, the writer Luke also says, uses a positive term. He says that they were genuinely amazed. That is, they, they didn't really understand what was going on, but they said, something about this seems really, really right. I think I want a little piece of this action. 
Then Luke says that they started this search for meaning. Hey, man, it's a bunch of hillbillies. And I don't think they're even drunk. And they're talking in other languages. What does this mean? See, I made reference to hillbillies. You've got to get this. The Galileans were the dumb hillbilly cousins of Israel. Okay, Not making this up. It's true. They lived way up in the north country. It was very mountainous. And it was very far from the cultural center of Jerusalem. And because of that, that distance, the, the cultures developed very differently. And these people up in the north spoke a different dialect. They had that, that accent that we typically, you know, in our, in our country, we would associate with dumb hillbilly people like my people. Okay? Yeah. These, and, and so they were looked at as the poor, dumb, uncultured relatives that you have to put up with. And that day, the uh, pre-Christian people said, it's the dumb hillbillies. They're talking about things they've never learned. They're speaking languages that they've never studied. They're, they're speaking with authority like that Jesus dude did who blew away all the trained teachers of the law. What do you think this means? It's a reasonable question, right? Some other people said, no, I'll tell you what this means. It means they're drunk. They've been up drinking all night and they haven't stopped and now they won't shut their mouths. Listen, you got to get your head wrapped around this too. When, uh, when you allow the Holy Spirit to fill you and change you and use you, there are going to be people who don't get it. There are going to be people who misinterpret this situation and there are always, always, always going to be mockers and hard-hearted people around. Just get good with it because it's the way life is going to go. We're not responsible for swaying the hard-hearted. We're not responsible for changing anyone's mind. We're responsible to be witnesses and to surrender ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit. And the response of those other people is between God and the listeners. And so is the softening of their hearts. But understand, you're going to come up against some people who point and laugh. And listen, you don't get to cop the persecuted church banner when people laugh. Okay, this is America and laughter. Come on. Just watch Seinfeld. They mock everybody, right? Have been for 20 years, okay? Yeah. All right. Listen, no matter how clear an example that people have seen, whether we're talking about the pre-Christian people on the day of Pentecost or the pre-Christian people in your neighborhood or at your place of work, no matter how clear an example of the Christ life they've seen, pre-Christian people need someone to explain the Jesus story and the Jesus life to them. Okay? You can say, I'm a silent witness. That's not a witness. Okay? The guy who gets on the stand and does this, when the attorney keeps asking questions, and the judge says, I'm ordering you to answer, you know what they do with him? Jail, people. They throw it. They're held in contempt of court. Okay? Silent witnesses, that's part-time work. Because there comes a point where you quit being silent because pre-Christian people will notice. Remember, they don't have the same radar that you do. So they go, there's something different about that lady, but I can't figure it out. And that's when you need the Holy Spirit to loose your tongue and enable you to speak the language of the people around you, and He will do so. No matter how clear an example they've seen, pre-Christian people need someone to explain the Jesus story. And so the text says that Peter, quote, filled with the Holy Spirit, stood up and blah, 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 explains all of the Jesus life and the Jesus story. The question is, will you? Peter did 
And you say, well, yeah, pastor, but I mean, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. You can be too. Okay? Same Holy Spirit available to Peter, available to you. Same ability available to you. In this text, I want us to focus on three things in this chapter that constitute the process of the Holy Spirit's work. Here are the three things. Number one, the Holy Spirit comes. Number two, the witnesses then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, start telling what Jesus has done. And the result of that, number three, is that people gained understanding by the Holy Spirit, believed, and were saved from hell in the future and hellish lives here and now. Listen to me. This is a normal occurrence when you are aware that you are filled with the Holy Spirit and when you get intentional about seeking to be in situations where you can be a witness. It's normal. Focus on those three things. Don't focus on signs. In the most self-evident thing I've ever said, signs aren't the point. What they point to is the point, right? I love it when the Holy Spirit shows up and does crazy things and magic tricks. I love it. I had this friend. She, uh, she had cancer. And I mean, a, a big enough tumor that it looked like she was pregnant. They said about a 15-pound abdominal tumor. Okay, like pregnant beyond anything you've seen, right? 15 pounds of tumor. She was having surgery on Monday morning. So on Sunday at church, they prayed for the lady who was going to die. She got up the next morning. Out to here. Her name's Susan. Not making this up. She goes to the hospital. And they start prepping her. And then the doctor says, Hey, Susan, where's the... So they went ahead because, you know, you need to look. And they did surgery. But 15-pound tumor just missing. Yeah, glory to God. By the power of the Holy Spirit. I love it when he does those kinds of things. But listen, we're not supposed to focus on the signs. The signs are always signs of something. They point us to something, to the working of the Holy Spirit. The working of the Holy Spirit, people witnessing with power and the salvation that happens as a result, that's the thing that we're supposed to focus on. Look for the point. Look for the purpose. Look for that result and expect them. At this point on in the passage, Peter's just preaching. I mean, preaching and preaching and preaching. The first ever Christian sermon. And uh, man, it worked. And it will work for you too. Listen, under the power of the Holy Spirit, expect ability and expect clarity that ordinarily aren't yours. You get a little confused about the Jesus story? I mean, if I just said, real quick, give me the Jesus story in a way that if I was an unbeliever, I could hear it, understand, believe, and repent. And some of you are already looking at me like, oh, I'm not shaking his hand after church because he's going to ask me to give it. Okay? That's, that's the normal us. That's you and me lacking self-confidence or trying to have self-confidence. But when we know and believe that the Holy Spirit intends to work through us, you can expect an ability and a clarity that aren't ordinarily yours. And that means that you can expect results. Sometimes they happen. Sometimes they don't. That you, not that you can see. But always expect them. The, the text says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. This happens when the witnesses expect the Spirit to move. 
And they said to Peter and the other apostles, here's the Cliff Purcell working man's translation. Dude, we're in trouble. NIV brothers, what shall we do? I mean, we're busted. And my heart says that the guy who said it is right. What should we do? When people show interest, you can know that the Holy Spirit is working in. Then you need to be ready to respond in the way that Peter did. I'm not going to teach you some, you know, three lines for you to memorize and put on a card and whip out and read to them. But you need to kind of organize your thoughts because the Lord's going to spring some doors for you. And when it comes, you need to be ready. And the message comes down to this. At least this is what Peter said when they asked him, what should we do? He said, you should repent. You should agree with God that you've blown it morally and that you need some serious help with living your life. Therefore, you turn away from sin and away from your own efforts to cover it up or make it go away and you just face God. Does that seem frightening? The idea of facing God? Yeah. The good news of the gospel is that you don't need to be overwhelmed with fear in the presence of God. Yes, He's big. Yes, He's powerful. Yes, He is feared for good reason at times. But Jesus said, listen, Lord, Father, let's work this out. I'll take the punishment. Give them the love. And that means that you can now turn and face God and look Him in the eye and expect to see something other than wrath. You can see love and acceptance coming back at you. Newsflash. Now hear this. God isn't mad at you. He never has been. Your friends need to know that because they think God is ticked off about how they've been living. When they said, what should we do? Peter said that. He said, repent. He said, be baptized. Baptism is this act of faith on the part of a person who believes. It's also an act of obedience on the part of a person who believes. It's also a demonstration of that person's faith. It's a, it's a visible word. I don't have to say anything. You get it. If I'm getting in the tank, I must be serious about this. But it's also an act that takes place from the church's position. And it, it's this act on the church's part where we are demonstrating our acceptance of you and that we can see your faith and we believe it. But it's also a vehicle of the cleansing grace of God. I don't know how to experience, how to explain it, but I'm just telling you, there's something that happens when you believe God enough to become obedient to Him and you enter the waters of Christian baptism. There is a mystical experience in those waters whereby you go, hmm, water on the outside shouldn't be able to make to cleanse my heart and yet it sure feels like it does and when we go through my preferred method we'll do it any which way but my preferred method of putting people under the water and bringing them up there's something that happens to you where it feels like i was dead and they laid me in the ground and i was resurrected to a whole new kind of life there's something that happens in the waters of Christian baptism. And when the people said, man, this cuts me to the heart when I realized this problem between me and God, what should we do? Peter said, turn away from sin, turn toward God. And then he said, be baptized. You want to do that? 